Thanks for listening to the Tribe Church Podcast. Our prayer is that these episodes bless and equip you in your apprenticeship to Jesus. Our goal as a community is to become more like Jesus and to offer Him through our lives to those around us here in Austin, Texas. More like Jesus, more for others. For more on our church, check out atxtribe.org. God bless. We are, like I said, on our third installment of this uh, unhurried series, and uh, we're taking the front end of the series to really explore the spiritual discipline of Sabbath. And I wanted to just lead out today, before we jump into kind of the main lesson, with just a few thoughts on this idea of the spiritual discipline of Sabbath. A few scriptures here. Mark chapter 2. Jesus says uh, that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So Jesus is teaching, and you can read through this on your own, study it out in that, in that chapter, but Jesus teaches that Sabbath is really a gift to humanity, uh, something for our benefit, something to help us become more like him, because God himself, Sabbath, something that God set up in the creation rhythms for us to partake in as part of his creation. Now, at the same time, People who became Christians in the New Testament, scriptures uh, who were Jewish first, uh, they, they followed Sabbath pretty, pretty closely. They kept to Sabbath. People who were becoming Christians who were not Jewish first, who were pagans first, uh, like you and I say, okay, I'm a pagan. That's okay. Right. Biblical language, it's not bad. You, but the pagans first, they became, you know, they, they took on different ideas of Sabbath. And really quickly, you see, even in the New Testament, starting to see a wrestling around Sabbath. And that's pretty much continued as long as the church has been here, right? So people have wrestled for a long time with this idea of Sabbath. Um, and the early Christian writers, they really taught that Jesus is, in fact, greater than the law that he came to fulfill, he came to lift up, he came to be the embodiment in himself and in his teachings of the heart and the actuality of God's law. You can read Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7 specifically talks about that. But Paul even says, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. So we'll study this a bit more, but for now, just a kind of quick note on this idea of Sabbath before we jump into our lesson. This is a spiritual discipline, okay? So that means it's not a spiritual justification, and I'm going to unpack what that means. Spiritual disciplines are essentially practices that we engage with as followers of Jesus that he himself practiced. So things like prayer and Bible study and silence and solitude and worship and fellowship and Sabbath even and fasting, all these kind of spiritual disciplines that he practiced, we practiced. And now in that way of placing our bodies and our minds and our hearts and our behaviors imitating Jesus, his Holy Spirit works upon us and helps us transform at a heart level. We align ourselves with his way of doing humanity, and somehow in that, the Spirit acts upon us to change us. Are you with me so far? For example, prayer is a spiritual discipline, right? We practice prayer, why? Because Jesus prayed. And we want to experience the relationship with God that Jesus had. He taught his disciples to pray as he had prayed. So when we pray, we all would recognize, I think, though, we don't earn any spiritual salvation credits in heaven for how long or how good we pray, right? Right? Yeah, okay, you guys are with me. Okay, good. Um, at least I'm in the same, the right, the right group here. Okay. Um, however, should we not pray? 
will that have an effect on our relationship with God? Absolutely, right? I would, I would argue that it will have a weakening effect overall on the, our ability to take on the character of Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that'll make us weaker at the battles we face for the, the world's spiritual formation that is trying to shape in our souls. We'll be weaker in, in really attack, in, in advancing and resisting and fighting against that spiritual formation that's happening in the world for us. Am I making sense so far? Yeah. Okay, good. In the same way, and this is just to kind of help our hearts with as we lean into this practice of Sabbath. In the same way, I'm no more or less saved by practicing Sabbath than I was before practicing Sabbath. Does that make sense? It's a spiritual discipline. And only the grace of God through the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection saves us by faith. Amen? This is where you say again, amen. Amen, right? So we're not exploring the idea of Sabbath in like a justification word. It's, it's really more, Sabbath has always, again, it's always been this area of contention, but we are landing clearly as a community and as a leadership, this is not a justification teaching, okay? But this is an invitation to partake in the kind of humanity, the kind of rhythms of life that Jesus himself lived, and in that way to experience a little bit more of his Holy Spirit and his relationship with God. So Sabbath, not, it is a spiritual discipline, right? It is a way of living like Jesus. It's not justification or salvation. And that's really an important distinction for us to make. Comfortable with that? Yeah. Sure. All right, this brings me to our discussion today. The business is out of the way. Uh, my, my wife and I, we had the incredible privilege of Sabbathing, no, sorry, not Sabbathing, it was kind of a Sabbath, I guess, um, honeymooning, which was like a really extended Sabbath. Honeymoon is like the only time you can like get out of, like nobody can reach you. Like you are off the planet, right? And we took a two-week honeymoon, we went over Europe, and uh, we spent most of the time in Crete, which was an incredible time. It was also like a 16-hour flight the day after we got married, so that was a bit of a cost. But we got there. We spent two weeks. It was incredible. And there was this experience we had. We were there, and, and uh, we, we chartered a, a small little private boat. This guy is kind of the salty captain guy, like shirtless, shoeless, probably wearing the same shorts he's been wearing since like 85, like just going for it, right? Big sunburnt belly, like just the whole deal. And he takes us out to this uninhabited island, these little islands that are around uh, Crete and all scattered throughout the islands, right? And there's nobody that lives there. And he just he drink, brings us there, anchors the boat, puts a cooler of beer and refreshments and says, hey, go have at it, like snorkel, explore the island, just have a great time. So we get on the island and we're, 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 we're having a good time. We got in a little bit of a fight, but that's normal on your honeymoon too. <laughs> Not the point of the story. Um, but the American in me, right, who has spent some money on this trip and has kind of figured, out, you know, I'm in a foreign country. I don't want this guy to leave me here on this island. And so I'm, I, I swim back to the boat at some point and I go, hey, what time is it? Because I want to make sure how I'm doing in relation to time. <laughs> and this guy, you could, see, you could see the disdain on his face. And in his voice, as he looked down at this American in the beautiful blue water with fish and a snorkel on and a cooler of beer and a, a deserted island and his wife, and he went, it's early. <laughs> like, just lay off, bud, relax. And I knew in that very moment how different our cultural relationship to time was. 
Like his culture invented olive oil and baklava and having dinner at nine o'clock at night and napping every day. My culture invented, you know, Google Calendar and fast food and the assembly line. Like that's who we are, right? There was this vast difference. We had a very different cultural expectation of what it meant to be human. We had different liturgies. And the title of today's lesson is a counter liturgy. Now, if I'm saying that word and you go, what's a liturgy? Well, this is, the de- this is kind of my idea of a, def- a definition of liturgy. It's essentially the way in which we organize our practices of worship. So today, we sang and we fellowshiped. We'll take communion in a little while. We're hearing from the scriptures. This is our liturgy as a practice. With me? We organize these practices to aim our attention at what we love most. And what we love, we worship. And what we love is Jesus. And so we're aiming all of our attention today at how to focus more on Jesus. We live in a world that also has liturgies. And it also has ways of worshiping what it loves. Are you with me right there? We, We... live in a place, in a culture, I think probably at a hyper, kind of a fever pitch of this experience of fullness and efficiency and productivity. And and really, we worship the idea of the efficient, productive human being. And we've built all kinds of liturgies into our culture to help us worship that ideal of the good life that comes from being an efficient, productive human being and we worship that. Would you recognize that? We say things like, you'll sleep when you're dead. Have you ever heard that? The world is run by tired men. And it's kind of a form of virtue signaling for us in our culture. Like we fill our days with this constant stimulation of work and technology and entertainment because Even if we don't have anything to do, we don't want to be seen as not having anything to do, so we take out our phones and we look at our phones and we find something to make up our time to do. Because how horrible to be seen as not doing something. We worship the attention economy. We spend our last, our waking mornings on our our devices, we spend our last moments of the day streaming entertainment before we go to bed, really out of a fear of kind of this FOMO, right? This fear of missing out. But boredom has kind of become the devil in our culture. Um, It's been said before, you know, boredom doesn't exist. When I was a kid, there was still this thing called boredom that existed. And when you had nothing to do, you had nothing to do. And there was no, like, device to help you find something to do, right? And if your shows weren't on, they just weren't on. Like, you couldn't stream. Nothing was happening. So you had to go find a stick in the backyard and make up something to do, right? (laughs) Boredom exists. It doesn't exist anymore. We filled our time. And in between time, we stick earbuds in our ears because we don't want to be left doing nothing. And so we've built liturgies, practices that aim our lives at becoming more efficient and productive. We practice things like streamlining. In other words, minimizing or removing the undesirable tasks and maximizing the desirable tasks. For example, we don't want to drive to the store, find parking, walk across the parking lot, walk through the aisles, have to interact with the minimum wage worker there, drive back to our house, realize we bought the wrong thing, go back to the store. We don't want to do all that. So what do we do? We just order online, Amazon Prime, baby. Get that thing tomorrow. It's there, you know, click of a button and we're done, right? 
We love this stuff. We worship productivity through the practices of efficiency in the temple of the internet via the sacred vessels of our smartphones. And productivity is really aimed, again, at this idea of becoming a person who lives the good life. And we see it all around us. The productive, the efficient around us are wealthy and well-affirmed and free from the burdens of common labor that is just common to humanity. They're producing better results at work. They have better influence over other people. They're more creative. They have great endeavors and pleasurable experiences, better than any of us, right? And they post it all the time and curate it perfectly for us to see and feel bad about how we're not being effective and productive enough. All the while, we're tired, we're anxious. This is a more easily overwhelmed generation than ever before. We're distracted. Our families and our spouses are having to fight for our attention because we're always in two places at once. And that this is not the story that the Bible tells. This is not the, the liturgy that the Bible offers. The Bible offers a very counter liturgy. Let's start in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says, then God said, and this is just the beginning, this is the creation story if you're not familiar with it. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the, the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God, God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours and all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky, all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it. I give you every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all his work that he had done, all his work of creating that he had done. Now, you can believe that the previous verses are describing, you know, six actual days, or it's more poetic, you know, language of, of kind of spaces in time. However, it's fine either way. That's not the point, really, of why we're looking at the scripture. The point is that God spends the front end of, create, of the creation story ordering chaos and taming these elements and bringing forth this beautiful garden with all these flourishing trees and animals, all kinds of creatures. And if you read prior to this, he defines every day, he looks at what he does and he goes, man, that's good. That's good. And then he puts humanity, man and woman, in this garden to partner with him and to make it flourish. And for the first time, he says, now this is very good. The very good life as God defines it. 
And in this definition of the good life, what day is humanity created? The sixth day. And God's already done all the work. He's already created everything. And so what does he do with them for the first day of their existence? What does humanity experience with God? Rest and delight in all that he has already done. And that's a very intentional way of writing this, to say that man was not created to labor and work first. Humanity was created. Ultimately, the end of all creation, including this creation someday, is ultimate rest with God. That's what this is all for. To delight with him in what he's already done. Isn't that good? Like they haven't earned their keep. They haven't produced a thing, and yet they're called very good and invited into the good life of God. The good life is one where humanity is created to rest with God, to enjoy all that he's already made, and to be like him. Now imagine if you're an ancient Israelite, because these are the first people who heard this, and you've spent 400, well not you, but your people have spent 400 plus years in slavery. You've literally been the work engines of an oppressive people who have held you down. It's the, the more bricks, less straw mentality. And your value as a person is directly linked to how you produce. And the only vision you have for the good life is should you produce enough, someday you might get there, but it's always unattainable. And you come into this, this wandering with this God, this desert experience with this God, and and now he's telling you a new story. He's going, that's not who you are. You are not what you produce. You are not the work you do. You are created to be with me and to delight in all that I've done and to worship in that space. You imagine how just shattering that would have been for their worldview, how hard it would have been for them to embrace that. And so Exodus comes in and starts to give some pretty heavy laws to help shape that. This is the gift of a counter-liturgy that God offers us. And the counter-liturgy, it predates the law. It's built into the rhythms of creation. In explaining this, uh, Abram Josh Joshua Heschel, who wrote this book uh, some decades ago called The Sabbath, it's a beautifully written book full of tons of insights. He's a Jewish rabbi and wrote this book on his practices of Sabbath over years and years and years with his family. This is what he has to say about building this palace in time. He says, he who wants to enter the holiness of the day must first lay down the profanity of clattering commerce, of being yoked to toil. He must go away from the screech of dissonant days, from the nervousness and fury of being, sorry, of acquisitiveness and the betrayal in embezzling his own life. He must say farewell to manual work and to learn to understand that the world has already been created and will survive without the help of man. Six days a week we wrestle with the world, wringing profit from the earth. On the Sabbath especially we care for the seed of eternity planted in the soul. The world has our hands, but our souls belong to someone else. Six days a week we dominate the world. On the seventh day we dominate the self. 
Man is not a beast of burden. And the Sabbath is not for the purpose of enhancing the efficiency of his work. God doesn't need you to work seven days a week. It's not good for you. It's not how you were created. Your world, your, your community and the world around you does not need you to work seven days a week. It's not good for you. It's not how you were created. Your family does not need you to work seven days a week. It's not good for you. It's not how you were created to live. You are not created to work seven days a week. It's not good for you. Repetition through it creates retention right there. That's a little pedagogy right there. It's not good for you. And so we enter into a counter liturgy to the world's. And our aim is at God's definition of the good life. And we practice this rhythm of time to dominate the false self and its pretense in our culture that says we are what we produce. And a culture that gives breaks at work, really only because we figured out it makes our, our workers more efficient. We resist that reality. We resist the liturgy, the liturgy that worships that ideal. And we intentionally reshape through the boundaries of time our hearts to be more like Jesus. So we can experience more of his relationship with God. Look, I am a producer by nature. Like, I love doing stuff. I have to-do lists all over the place. I don't get to all of them, but it keeps the engine going to see the to-do list, right? I have a bent towards kind of accomplishing challenging tasks. I, I love taking on the opportunities of maximizing time. I have in my office, I've had it for many years, this, this poster that says, don't waste time. <laughs> I have an aversion to wasting time. And in my family of origin, that was the model. Like manhood, my dad was busy all the time. Working, paid work, 50 hours a week. And then even when he's home, the guy's just not still. He's always up to something, right? And I love my dad. He's taught me a lot about how to be sacrificial and how to, be, how to work hard and all those things. But I didn't learn how to rest well from my family of origin. How about you? I started practicing Sabbath probably about four years ago, uh, really because I was overwhelmed, and you can check the age of my kids to figure out what was overwhelming me at the time. <laughs> but I was having like stress-induced anxiety attacks while all the while working full-time, parenting, helping out at home, keeping the house, you know, you know, in good shape, being a good husband, a minister, a friend, a musician, exercising regularly, right? Spending time with my kids on a regular basis, keeping up with whatever the series was and posting on it. All the while staying busy with things that looked like how life should be. And yet internally, I was, I was folding because something was being demanded of me that I didn't have. You can't give away what you don't have. And if you try to for long enough, you start to break down. And I knew I need more of the Holy Spirit because God is calling me to love people in my life increasingly. And he's calling you to love people in your life in an increasing measure. But you can't give away what you don't have. 
And I needed the Holy Spirit to transform my heart to be a power and a sustenance and a strength that would, that would do more than what I could do on myself. And I just started figuring out where is, where can I get more of the Holy Spirit? Like where, and I started diving into these spiritual practices of fasting and Sabbath, all kinds of, I started experimenting with these things and going, wow, there are other experiences with the Holy Spirit that I can have if I build them into regular rhythms that shape my heart. And Sabbath was a paramount one. But my system was set up perfectly to produce the results I was getting. In other words, the liturgy that I was living was aiming itself at a false definition of the good life, even while being a minister in the church. And I was producing the fruit of that false life. And I know I'm not alone. We're taking four weeks to talk about this. Obviously, I'm not alone. Many of you are struggling. You're struggling with anxiety and fatigue and depression and I understand that there are, there are real imbalances and genetic challenge, you know, genetic things that, wor that work our way through our biology that affect those. But, but many of us, it really has more to do with our rootedness of our inherent value in the wrong worldview. That we believe somewhere deep down the world's story. And we practice a liturgy that's aiming itself at becoming more like that version of the good life. And what it's producing in our hearts and in our marriages and in our family cultures is not the fruit of the Holy Spirit. How do we live in such a countercultural way? Enter Rabbi Jesus. Matthew chapter 11, let's look there. Jesus says this, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. He's not talking about a nap, though Jesus loved a good nap. He's talking about something inside of you, something that is who you are, a presence of rest and peace and joy that you can give away to others around you, that Jesus could give away because he held it. It was his. And he's inviting us into this rest. And if you just read a few, few sentences more in your own time, he goes right into a direct teaching on Sabbath. So you can imagine what he's talking about. This isn't just an, an agreement. Oh, God wants me to agree with Jesus, and somehow that'll help me find rest. He's inviting you into real rhythms and practices of humanity as he practiced them. Are you with me right there? One of the things you notice quickly about Jesus is he was busy throughout the Gospels. And he's busy with the work of, of, of God all the time. He's, he's going someplace. He's preaching somewhere. People are calling him over here. He's healing. He's up late. He's up early. All those kind of things. But, but often we see him retreating to go be with God and to rest. And if you know anything about first century Jews and especially first century Jewish rabbis, he was serious about practicing the Sabbath. And he would stop and rest and delight with his friends. Often other people's houses. He would just invite himself over and delight with good food with his friends and fellowship and prayer and study and fun and laughter and resting. 
Another thing we notice about Jesus in the Gospels that I think would challenge many of us is he walked everywhere. Imagine how long it would take you to get to Zach today if you had to walk to church. Like what time you would have had to start, right? But Jesus walked everywhere. What did that tell us about his relationship to time? This is the son of God. He's tasked with saving the world and he's just walking places. And along the way, he's got plenty of time to be interrupted by people. He's not back to back to back to back to back. I'll catch you on Monday. Let me, let's text, let's email about that. We'll follow up, we'll put something on the calendar. He's got plenty of time to be interrupted. He's inviting us into a new way of living our humanity, to yoke up our lives with him, to put energy into even work. A yoke is a work tool to put energy even into the work that we do in a different way. But we've got to learn from him. Pete Scazzaro, who's a minister in New York City, he was for many years, he's written a, written a bunch of books and he's got a podcast. His books are called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship and some of you guys may have read them. Uh, there's emotionally healthy spirituality and discipleship and leadership and all kinds of good stuff about emotionally healthy spirituality. But he, he gives 10 reasons why you should practice Sabbath. And I'm going to share those 10 reasons with you. First, he says, it's something God did. So that's a pretty good start, right? Jesus practiced it. And those who are created in his image, as those who are created in his, in his image, we are created to do it as well. Secondly, Sabbath was built into the DNA of creation. Like literally, it doesn't work. Earth doesn't work if it doesn't get a period of rest. Just talk to your local farmer about that, right? Like it's built into creation to rest. Third, God created Sabbath as holy. It's a special time that he recognizes as holy, set apart. One of the best ways to think about holiness is that through holiness, we become whole as people. That this idea of holiness is God's inviting us into a way of life that reshapes who we are. Five, Sorry, four, it protects our, it helps us embrace our limits. This is really good for many of us because it puts in place God and us in the right order. God is running the universe. He doesn't need us. The world will survive just fine without you for a period of time. You could even turn off your phone. I turn off my phone on Sabbath. People are like, what? What do you do? I'm like, I just spend time in one place with one group of people. Not everybody in, you know, infinity and with this group of people. I just turn it off. The world doesn't need me. It's going to go on just fine without me for a day. It protects us from doing violence to our bodies, uh, to ourselves, to our emotions and our minds. We were not meant to work seven days a week. Burnout is a modern day phenomenon. You don't see burnout in history. It's a post-industrial age, modern-day phenomenon. When we stopped sleeping 11 hours a day because we didn't have electricity, right, because we used to sleep a lot because we didn't have electricity, we just went to bed when it got dark. Like, it's dark, I guess it's bedtime. We, we started staying up later, we started sleeping a lot less. And there's kind of this ego thing that goes around, like for, I don't know if it's for everybody, but certainly for guys and for the entrepreneurs among us, that it's like, I only sleep five hours a day, right? And then the, the, literally the work world had to like work against that. And you had all these people going, no, 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 you have to sleep in order to be productive. 
but it reminds you of your limits. I stop doing whatever I'm doing for work when Sabbath starts. And I recognize it's not, the work I'm doing is not finished. God's going to have to pick it up. And that's a good thing. I have limits and you do too. Six, it reminds you that God's world is good and offers a, new, offers a preview of the unimaginable world to come. You're bringing heaven just a little bit closer. You're trying to experience heaven for a space of time. Seven, it defeats the powers that define people by what they do. You are not defined by what you do, but by a God who loves you. Eight, Sabbath offers a lived experience of God's love. And this takes time to get into, but man, once you start to taste that and you realize, man, I don't, I don't work to be loved. I am loved and I can rest in God's love. It is so freeing and so fulfilling for your soul. Nine, it breaks addictions to doing, making, producing, and accomplishing. For many of us, even just trying to do this for a little bit of time feels like withdrawals. Like we just want to pick up our phone. We want to check the email. We want to check something because doing nothing feels so foreign to us. Ten, it points people to Jesus. Why would anyone take a whole day to rest and be with God? Because he's just that good. And living that rhythm of life, it, it's just that good. Jesus comes and lives this counter liturgy, not the world's. He lives in a relationship with God and with rest that brings others, attracts others to him. He's not rushed. He's not hurried. He's not anxious. He's not competing. He has a presence of peace and patience and love who points to God and to a very def different definition in the world's of what the good life really is. And if you want that, you have to live differently. Like agreeing with Jesus will not change that for you. You have to actually practice and try. And he's inviting you into that. Three things that you should be aiming for on your Sabbath. And then we're going to land here. First is you should aim to stop. <laughs> like just stop. Stop working. Stop doing. Sabbath is not a day off. Like on day offs, you still do chores and you still run errands. Or somebody does in your household. Maybe it's not you. I don't know. Somebody's out there working. Sabbath is not a day off. Sabbath is a day to just stop. Don't do anything like that. Work paid or unpaid. Complete ceasing of work. Two, rest. Do what brings you rest. And, and that may mean different things for different people, but, but sleep in, eat well, read, take a walk. If you're an extrovert, go meet a friend for lunch, but like do what brings you rest. Many of us are introverts, so we just think of like rest, like get people out of there and just like give me a book and leave me alone, right? But if you're an extrovert and you're like, I don't know how to rest, well, maybe rest means spending some time with a good friend and having a great talk. Just don't talk about work. Figure something else to talk about, right? But find what gives you rest and then delight. Oh, this is good. Like intentionally enjoy all that God has already done. Like he's already built it. He's already set it all up. And he wants you to enjoy him 
the relationships he gives you, the food that's in your, your pantry and your refrigerator. He wants you to enjoy the, the time of day and the sunlight. He wants you to enjoy your backyard that you spent so much money on and landscaping on and you never go into. He wants you to enjoy, create. he wants you to enjoy all that you have and just delight that God is good, he's done the work. I just get to enjoy it and delight. So choose a seventh day rhythm and practice that. Sundays may be a really good day for you to try that. Like maybe Saturday's not the day. That's okay. Maybe Sunday is the day because you kind of already have some, some built-in worship right here. We're doing some work for you on Sunday, right? But, but figure out a day, a seventh-day rhythm that you can begin to practice this. Stop, rest, delight. Now, for those who want a little extra intentional counter-liturgy, I want to invite you into, um, this sounds really pitchy, but it's not. I want to invite you into an exclusive six-week counter-liturgy. And, and what, I'm, what Rachel and I are doing is we're inviting six people into a, a counter-liturgy that's going to go a little bit beyond even Sabbath, but includes Sabbath, to practice with us that for, for six weeks. And we'll meet probably three times over that six weeks to just practice. But we're going to take time to do things that we usually don't take time to do. And in that, we're going to try to re reshape intentionally our relationship with time and the people that, time, that are included in that time. Does that make sense? So if you're interested, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're going to try to get an invitation out here this week. Uh, we're inviting six people. Part of it will just be coming and having Sabbath dinner at our family, at our, at our house with us, with our family. Um, you can, I'm going to put my number up on the screen here. You can shoot me a text or a call or whatever. Let me know. Um, couples are welcomed. If you're a family of like six, boom, our job is done. We got six people. Um, but we're inviting people to come and to practice this just for a short run for six weeks. We're going to do some other things like we're going to take social media off our phone. We're going to leave our phones someplace other than the people we're with. We're going to do some things like go to the store and make food with the groceries we buy rather than Uber Eats. Like we're going to do some other things, but we're trying to intentionally shift our relationship with time. And in that experience, what Jesus experienced, a little bit. We're not going to walk everywhere, don't worry. We still are going to drive our cars, but we're trying to be intentional about this. We want to invite you into that. So if you're interested, just shoot me a text and I'll get the word out to you. As we prepare for communion, we live in a culture that is suffering. It's suffering all around us because of their relationship to work and time and the worship of production. But we have a God who gives us good gifts, who calls his way of life very good. And he calls us and invites us into that rhythm of life to live his very good definition of life. And in that way, to be a light to the world around us that is just suffering under the oppressive identity of I am my own and I have got to produce. And we stand as a counter-liturgy in our community, in our lives, in our families, and we say, no, no, we are not our own. We were bought at a price. We belong to Jesus. King Jesus rules the day. God has already done all the work, and we are created to rest in him because of the work that he's done. Let's pray. Let's pray.